Chapter Twelve of Ashfordell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Ashfordell by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Twelve. And to the dinner fast they hem sped. Mr. McCloskey's suggestions for new hothouses at Goring Abbey were on so large a scale as to necessitate a good deal of consultation with architect and builder before the new constructions and alterations of existing structures were put in hand. The head gardener at South Hill had tried his hardest to secure the whole organisation and direction of the work for himself, and to have large powers in the choice of the men who were to carry it out. "'You'll not need any architect, Mr. Goring, "'if you'll just let me explain my mind to the builder,' "'said this modest Caledonian. "'Architects know a deal about the Parthenon "'and the Temple of the Winds "'and that kind of old-fashioned classical stuff, "'but there's not one of them knows "'how to plan a good workable hothouse "'or to build a flue that won't smoke "'when the wind's contrary. "'Architects are very good for the fronts of clubhouses,' and civil service stores, and that like, but if you trust your new houses to an architect, I'll give odds when they're done, there'll be no place for me to put my coals. If you'll just give me free scope, you are very good, Mr. McCloskey, answered Gerald with velvety softness, but my father was a thoroughly practical man, and I believe he knew as much of the science of construction as any man living. Yet, he always employed an architect when he wanted anything built for himself, were it only a dustbin. I'll stick to his lines. Very well, sir, you must please yourself. But an orchid house is a critical thing to build. The outside of it may be as handsome as St. Peter's at Rome, but your orchids won't thrive unless they like the inside arrangements, and for them you'll want a practical man. "'I'll get a practical man, Mr. McCloskey. "'You may be sure of that,' answered Gerald, "'ineffably calm, though the Scot was looking daggers. "'The morning before Mrs. Ferrer's family dinner "'was devoted to the architect, "'who came down from London to Goring Abbey, "'expressly to advise and be instructed. "'He was entertained at luncheon at the Abbey, "'and Lena drove over under her aunt's wing to meet him.' while Gerald's thoroughbred hack, a horse of such perfect manners that it mattered very little whether his rider had hands or no hands, ambled along the turfy borders of the pleasant country road beside the phaeton. Daphne had her day all to herself, since, knowing her to be alone at South Hill, Edgar had no excuse for going there. And, as Mr. Turchill argued with himself, a man must give some portion of his life to the dearest old mother and the most picturesque old house in the county. So, Edgar, with his fancies flying off and circling about South Hill, contrived to spend a moony day at home, mending his fishing rods, reviewing his guns, writing a few letters, and going in and out of his mother's homely, old-fashioned morning room twenty times, between breakfast and luncheon. Mrs. Turchill had been invited to the family dinner at Arden Rectory, 
and had accepted the invitation, though she was not given to dissipation of any kind, and she and her son found a good deal to say about the coming feast during Edgar's desultory droppings in. "'I hope you'll like her, mother,' said Edgar, stopping, with a gun in one hand and an oily rag in the other, to look dreamily across the moat to the quiet meadows beyond, where the dark red Devon cows contrasted deliciously with the fresh green turf sprinkled with golden buttercups and silvery marguerites. "'Like her?' echoed Mrs. Turchill, lifting her soft blue eyes in mild astonishment from her matronly task of darning one of the best damask tablecloths. "'Why, she is the sweetest girl I know. I would have given ten years of my life for you to have married her.' This was awkward for Edgar, who had spoken of Daphne while Mrs. Turchill thought of Madeline. "'Not with my consent, mother,' he said, laughing and reddening as he laughed. "'I couldn't have spared a single year. "'But I wasn't speaking of Madeline just then. "'I know of old how fond you are of her. "'I was talking of poor little Daphne, "'whom you haven't seen since she came from her French school.' "'French school!' exclaimed Mrs. Turchill contemptuously. "'I hate the idea of those foreign schools.' "'Regular Jesuitical places, where they take girls to operas and theatres "'and give them fine notions,' pursued the Saxon matron, "'whose ideas on the subject were slightly mixed. "'Why couldn't Sir Vernon send her to the Mrs. Tompion at Leamington? "'That's a respectable school, if you like. "'Good evangelical principles, separate bedrooms, and plain English diet. "'I hope the French school hasn't spoilt Daphne.' She was a pretty little girl with bright hair, I remember, but she had rather wild ways. Something too much of a tomboy for my taste. She was so young, mother, when you saw her last. Not fifteen. Well, I suppose French governesses have tamed her down, and that she's pretty stiff and prim by this time, said Mrs. Turchill, with chilling indifference. No, mother. She is a kind of girl whom no training would ever make conventional. She is thoroughly natural, original even, and doesn't mind what she says. That sounds as if she talked slang, said Mrs. Turchill, who, although the kindest of women in her conduct, could be severe of speech on occasion. And of all things, I detest slang in a woman. I hope she is industrious. The idleness of the young women of the present day is a crying sin. Edgar Turchill seemed hardly to be aware of this last remark. He was polishing the gunmetal industriously with that horrible oily rag which accompanied him everywhere on his muddling mornings at home. "'She's accomplished, I suppose,' speculated Mrs. Turchill. "'Plays and sings and paints on velvet?' "'Yes, that's to say I'm not sure about the velvet,' answered Edgar faintly not remembering any special artistic performances of Daphne's, except certain attempts on a drawing-block, which had seemed to him too green and too cloudy to lead to much, and which he had never beheld in an advanced stage. "'She is awfully fond of reading,' he added, in a rather spasmodic manner, after an interval of silent thought. "'The poetry she knows would astonish you.' "'That would be easy,' retorted Mrs. Turchill. 
My father and mother didn't approve of poetry, and Cowper, Thompson, and Kirk White were the only poets allowed to be read by us girls at old Miss Tompion's. These ladies are nieces of my Miss Tompion, you know, Edgar. How can I help knowing it, mother, when you've told me a hundred and fifty times? exclaimed her son, more impatiently than his wont. Well, Edgar, my dear, if you're tired of my conversation... No, you dear peppery old party, not a bit. Go on like an old dear as you are. Only I thought you were rather hard upon poor little Daphne just now. How can I be hard upon her when I haven't seen her for the last three years? Dear, dear, what a small place Leamington was in my time, pursued Mrs. Turchill, musing blandly upon the days of her youth. But it was much more select. None of those rich people from Birmingham. None of these Londoners coming down to hunt. But a very superior class. Invalids, elderly people who came to drink the waters and to consult Dr. Jepson. It must have been lively, murmured Edgar, not deeply interested. It was not lively, Edgar, but it was select, corrected Mrs. Turchill with dignity, as she paused with her head on one side to admire the neatness of her own work. She was the kindest and best of mothers, but Edgar felt on this particular occasion that she was rather stupid and a trifle narrow in her ideas. A purely rustic life has its disadvantages, and a life which is one long procession of placid, prosperous days, knowing little more variety than the change of the seasons, is apt to blunt the edge of the keenest intellect. Mrs. Turchill ought to have been more interested in Daphne, Edgar thought. She will be delighted with her when she sees her, he reasoned, comforting himself. Who can help being charmed with a girl who is so thoroughly charming? And then he took up his gun and his rag and strolled away to another part of the roomy old house, so soberly and thoroughly old-fashioned, not with the Jim Crack spurious old fashion of today, but with the grave, ponderous realities of centuries ago. Walls four foot thick, deeply recessed windows, massive untrimmed joists, low ceilings, narrow passages, oak wainscoting, inconveniences and shortcomings of all kinds, but the subtle charm of the remote past, the romantic feeling of a house that has many histories pervading everything. Edgar would not have changed Hawksyard and his three thousand a year for Goring Abbey and a million. The house and the land around it, or at any rate the land, had belonged to his race from time immemorial, far back in the dim days of the Heptarchy. Tradition held that the first of the Turchills had been a Sokerman, who possessed a yard of land on the old feudal tenure, one of his obligations being that he should breed hawks for the king's falconers, and thus the place had come in time to be called Hawk's Yard, long after the last hawk bred there had flown away to join some wild branch of the honey buzzard family in the treetops of primeval Arden. And the yard of land had swelled into a very respectable manor. Edgar rather liked to believe that the founder of his race had been a Sokerman, 
who had held thirty acres of land from the king at a penny an acre, and had furnished labourers for the royal harvest, and had ridden up and down the field with a wand in his hand, to see that his men worked properly. This curious young man was as proud of Turchill the Sokerman as of Turchill the High Sheriff. If it was a humble origin, its humility was of such ancient date that it became distinction. Turchill of the Thirty Acres was like Adam, or Paris, or David. In the long line of the Turchills, whose bones were lying in the vaults below Hawksyard Church, there had been men distinguished in the field, the church, and the law, men who had fought on sea and land, men who had won power in the state, and used it well, true alike to king and commons. But the ruck of the Turchills had been country squires like Edgar and Edgar's father, men who farmed their own land and lived upon it, and who had no ambitions and few interests or desires beyond their native soil. Hawksyard was a real moated grange. The house formed three sides of a quadrangle, with a heavily buttressed garden wall for the fourth side. The water flowed all around the solid base of the building, a wide, deep moat, well stocked with pike and eels, carp and roach. The square inner garden was a prim parterre of the 17th century, and there was not a flower grew there more modern than Lord Bacon's day. This was a Turchill fancy. All the novelties of 19th century horticulture might flourish in the spacious garden on the other side of the moat. But this little bit of ground within the grey old walls was a sacred enclosure, dedicated to the spirit of the past. Here the old yew trees were clipped into peacocks. Here grew rosemary, lavender, periwinkle, white, purple and blue, germander, flags, sweet marjoram, primroses, anemones, hyacinths, and the rare fritillaria, double white violets which bloom in April and again at Bartholomew tide, gillyflowers, sweetbriar, and the musk rose. Here the brazen sundial on its crumbling stone pedestal reminded the passer-by that no man is always wise. Here soft mosses, like tawny velvet, crept over the grey relics of an abbey that had been destroyed soon after the grange was built. The stone coffin of a mitred abbot, the crossed legs of a knightly crusader with a headless heraldic dog at his feet. Here was the small circular fish-pond into which the last of the abbots was supposed to have pitched head foremost and incontinently drowned himself, walking alone at midnight in a holy trance. Mrs. Turchill was almost as fond as Edgar was of Hawksyard, but her affection took a commonplace turn. She was not to the manor born. She had come to the Grange from a smart nineteenth-century villa, and though she was very proud of the grave old house of which her husband had made her the mistress, her pride was mingled with an idea that Hawksyard was inconvenient, and that its old fashion was a thing to be apologised for and deprecated at every turn. Her chief delight was in keeping her house in order, 
and her servants were drilled to an almost impossible perfection in every duty appertaining to house-cleaning. Nobody's brasses, or oak floors, or furniture, or family plate, or pewter dinner service, ever looked so bright as Mrs. Turchill's. Nowhere were windows so spotless, nowhere was linen so exquisitely white, or of such satin-like smoothness. Mrs. Turchill lived for these things. When she was in London, or at the seaside, she would be miserable on rainy days, at the idea that Jane, or Mary, would leave the windows open, and that the brass fenders and firearms were all going to ruin. Edgar spent a moony, purposeless day, dawdling a good deal in the garden on the other side of the moat, where the long, old-fashioned borders were full of tall white lilies and red moss roses, vivid scarlet geranium, heliotrope, and calciolara, a feast of sweet scents and bright colours. There was a long and wide lawn without a flower-bed on it, a level expanse of grass, and on the side opposite the flower-border there was a row of good old mulberry and walnut trees. Then came a light iron fence, and a stretch of meadow-land beyond it. The grounds at Hawksyard made no pretence of being a park. There was not even a shrubbery, only that straight row of old trees standing up out of the grass, with a gravel walk between them and the fence, across which Edgar used to feed and fondle his cows, or coax the shy brood mares and their foals to social intercourse. He looked round his domain doubtfully today, wondering if it were good enough for Daphne, this poor table-land of a garden, a flat lawn, a long old-fashioned border crammed with homely flowers, the yew-tree arbour at the end of yonder walk. How poor a thing it seemed after South Hill, with its picturesque timber and extensive view, its broad terrace and sloping lawn, its rich variety of shrubs and conifers. "'It isn't because I am fond of the place that she would care for it,' he told himself despondently. "'I'm afraid there's nothing romantic or striking about it, except the moat. "'I'm glad she's so fond of water.' Edgar smoked a cigarette or two under the mulberry trees, looked at his cows, talked to some of his men, and thus contrived to wear away the afternoon till the clock over the gateway struck five. "'Mother's tea-time. I'll go and have a cup with her,' he said to himself. Going out to dinner was a tremendous piece of business with Mrs. Turchill. She was more serious and solemn about it than a strictly modern lady would feel about going to be married. Even in an instance of this kind, where the dinner was supposed to be entirely unceremonious, a friendly little gathering, arranged on the spur of the moment, she was still full of fuss and preparation. She had spent an hour in her bedchamber before luncheon, arranging and discussing with her maid Deborah what gown she would or would not wear on the occasion, and this discussion involved a taking out and unfolding of all her dinner gowns, and an offering of divers laces upon divers bodices to see which went best with which. A review of this kind generally ended by a decision in favour of black velvet, or satin, or silk, or brocade, 
as the case might be, Mrs. Turchill being much richer in gowns than in opportunities for wearing them. I always like myself best in black, she would say, with a glance at the reflection of her somewhat florid complexion in the Chippendale glass. You always look the lady in your velvet, mum, Deborah would answer sententiously. Then, after a day of quiet usefulness about her house, the worthy matron would collect her energies over a leisurely cup of tea, and perhaps allow herself the refreshment of a nap after her tea, before she began the solemn business of the toilet. The carriage had been ordered for a quarter past seven, though it was but half an hour's drive to Arden Rectory, and at seven o'clock Mrs. Turchill was seated in the white parlour, in all the dignity of her velvet gown and point-lace cap, her hereditary amethysts, supposed to be second only to those once possessed by George III's virtuous consort, and her scarlet and gold Indian shawl. She was a comely matron, with a complexion that had never been damaged by cark or care, gas or late hours, a rosy-faced country-bred dame, with bright blue eyes, white teeth, and plentiful brown hair, in which the silver threads were hardly visible. Edgar was standing by the open window, just where he had stood in the morning with his gun, sorely perplexed as to the disposal of those fifteen minutes which had to be got through before the most punctual of coachmen would bring the carriage to the door. The London papers were lying unheeded on the table. But Edgar had felt very little interest of late in the welfare of nations, or even in the last dreadful murder in Whitechapel. "'I hope my cap is right,' said Mrs. Turchill anxiously. "'How could it be wrong, mother, when you've Deborah and your looking-glass, and have never been known to dress yourself in a hurry?' "'I dislike doing anything in a hurry, Edgar. It is against my principles. But I never feel sure about the set of my cap. I am afraid Deborah's eye is not quite correct, and a glass is dreadfully deceiving. I wish you'd look, Edgar, if it isn't too much trouble.' This was said reproachfully, as her son was kneeling on the window-seat, staring idly down into the moat, as if he wanted to discover the whereabouts of an ancient pike that had evaded him last year. "'My dear mother!' he exclaimed, turning himself about to survey her. "'To my eye, which may be no better than Deborah's, that lace arrangement, which you call a cap, appears mathematically exact.' as precise as your own straight, honest mind. There's Dobson with the carriage. Come along, mother. He led her out, established her comfortably in her own particular seat in the large landau, and seated himself opposite to her with a beaming countenance. How happy you look, Edgar, said Mrs. Turchill, wondering at this unusual radiance. One would think it were a novelty for you to dine out. "'Yet I'm sure,' somewhat plaintively, "'you don't very often dine at home.' "'The rectory dinners are not to be despised, mother.' "'Mrs. Ferrers is an excellent manager "'and does everything very nicely. "'But as you don't much care what you eat, "'that would hardly make you so elated. "'I'm rather surprised that you care about meeting Madeline "'and Mr. Goring so often,' added Mrs. Turchill, 
who had not quite forgiven Lena for having refused to marry her son. That is the worst of making a confidant of a mother. She has an inconveniently long memory. I have nothing but kindly feelings for either of them, answered Edgar. Don't you know that old song, mother? Shall I, wasting in despair, die because a woman's fair? I don't look much like wasting in despair, do I, old lady? I should be very sorry to see you unhappy, Edgar, but I shall never love any wife of yours as well as I could have loved Madeline. Don't say that, mother. That's too hard on the future Mrs. Turchill. This was a curious speech from a youth who six months ago had protested that he should never marry, but perhaps this was only Edgar's fun. Mrs. Turchill shared the common delusion of mothers, and thought her son a particularly humorous young man. What a sweetly Arcadian retreat Arden Rectory looked on this fair summer evening, and how savoury was the odour of a solo gratin which blended with the flowery perfumes of the low-panelled hall. The guests had wandered out through the window of the small drawing-room to the veranda and lawn in front of it. That long French window was a blot upon the architectural beauty of the half-timbered Tudor cottage, but it was very useful for circulation between drawing-room and garden. Mrs. Ferrers and Madeline were sitting under the veranda. Daphne was standing a little way off on the lawn, talking to the rector and Gerald Goring. She was speaking with intense animation, her face full of brightness. Edgar darted off to join the group, directly he had shaken hands with the two ladies, leaving his mother to subside into one of those new-fangled bamboo chairs, which she felt assured would leave its basket-work impression on her velvet gown. Edgar! cried Daphne, as he came towards her. Did you ever hear of such a heathen? A man born on the soil? A very pagan? Who is the culprit? asked Edgar. And what has he done? Mr. Goring has never seen Anne Hathaway's cottage. I don't believe he knew who Anne Hathaway was till we told him, said the rector with his fat laugh. And he has ridden and driven through Shottery hundreds of times, and he never stopped to look at the cottage where Shakespeare, the most wonderful man in the whole world, wooed and won his wife. I have heard it dimly suggested that she wooed and won him remarked Gerald placidly. She was old enough. You are too horrid, cried Daphne. Would you be surprised to hear that Americans cross the Atlantic three thousand miles of winds and waves and sea-sickness on purpose to see Stratford-on-Avon and Shottery and Wilmcott and Snitterfield? I could believe anything of a Yankee answered Gerald, unmoved by these reproaches. But why Wilmcott? Why Snitterfield? They are as poky little settlements as you could find in any agricultural district. Did you ever hear of such hideous ignorance? cried Daphne. And in a son of the soil? You are most unworthy of the honour of having been raised in Shakespeare's country. Why, John Shakespeare was born at Snitterfield. And Mary Arden lived with her father at Wilmcott, and it was there he courted her. 
John, Mary, oh, distant relations of the poets, I suppose, inquired Gerald easily. This is revolting, exclaimed Daphne. But he is shamming. He must be shamming. Punish him for his ignorance, whether it is real or pretended, cried Edgar. Make him row us all down to Stratford tomorrow morning, and then we'll walk him over to Shottery and make him give a new gown to the nice old woman who keeps the cottage. A new gown, echoed Daphne contemptuously. He ought to be made to give her a cow, a beautiful mouse-coloured Channel Island cow. I'll give her anything you like, as long as you don't bore me to death about Shakespeare. I hate sights and lions of all kinds. I went through Frankfurt without looking at the house where Goethe was born. A depraved desire to be singular, said the rector. I think he ought to forfeit a cow to Mrs. Baker. Rhoda, my love, glancing furtively at his watch. Our friends are all here. Todd is usually more punctual. Mrs. Ferrers, Lena and Mrs. Turchill had strolled out to join the others. The prim, rustic matron was looking at Daphne with astonishment rather than admiration. She was pretty, no doubt. Mrs. Turchill had never seen a more transparent complexion or lovelier eyes, but there was a reckless vivacity about the girl's manner which horrified the thoroughly British matron. "'Daphne,' said Edgar, "'I hope you haven't forgotten my mother.' "'Mother, this is Daphne.' Mrs. Turchill drew back a pace or two with extreme deliberation, and sank gracefully in the curtsy which she had been taught by the Leamington dancing-master, an undoubted Parisian, five and thirty years ago. After the curtsy, she extended her hand and allowed Daphne to shake it. "'Come, Mrs. Turchill,' said the rector, offering his arm. Goring, bring Miss Lawford. Turchill will take care of my wife. And Daphne, he paused, smiling at the fair young face and slender girlish figure in soft white muslin, Daphne shall have my other arm and sit on my left hand. I feel there is a bond of friendship between us now that I find she is so fond of Shakespeare. I'm afraid I know Hamlet's soliloquies better than I do my duty to my neighbour, said Daphne on the way to the dining room remembering how the rector used to glower at her under his heavy brows when she broke down in that portion of the church catechism. Mrs. Ferrers, from her opposite seat at the oval table, had a full view of her husband's demeanour across the roses and maidenhair ferns and old derby crimson and purple dessert dishes. It was rather trying to her to see that he devoted himself entirely to Daphne during the pauses of the meal, and that, while he, as in duty bound, provided for all Mrs. Turchill's corporeal needs, and was solicitous that she should do ample justice to his wines and his dishes, he allowed her mind to starve upon the merest scraps of speech dropped into her ear at long intervals. Nor was Edgar much better behaved to Mrs. Ferrers, for he sank into such a slough of despond at finding himself separated from Daphne, that his conversational sources suddenly ran dry, and Rhoda's lively inquiries about the plays and pictures he had just been seeing elicited only the humiliating fact that she, who had not seen them, 
knew a great deal more about them than he who had. "'What do you think of the Millet landscape?' she asked. "'Was there a landscape by Millet? I thought he was a portrait painter.' This looked hopeless, but she tried again. "'And Frith's picture? You saw that, of course.' "'No, I didn't,' he replied, brightening. "'But I saw the people looking at it. It was immensely good, I believe. There was a railing and a policeman to make the people move on. My mother was delighted. She and another lady trod on each other's gowns in their eagerness to get at the picture. I believe they would have come to blows if it hadn't been for the policeman. And there was Miss Thompson's picture? Yes, and another crowd. That is the sort of picture mother enjoys. I think the harder the struggle is, the better she likes the picture. Gerald and Madeline were sitting side by side, talking as happily as if they had been in Eden. All the world might have heard their conversation. There were no secrets. There were no exchange of confidences. And yet they were as far away from the world about them, and as completely out of it, as if they had been in the planet Venus, rising so calmly yonder above the willows, and sending one tremulous arrow of light deep down into the dark brown river. For these two, Mrs. Todd's most careful achievements were as nothing. Her solo gratin might have been served with horseradish sauce or fried onions. Her volavant might have been as heavy as suet pudding. Her blanquette might have been bill stickers paste. Her souffle might have been flavoured with peppermint instead of vanille, and they would hardly have discovered that anything was wrong. And what delight it was by and by! to wander out into the cool garden, leaving the rector to prose to poor Edgar over his chambertin, and to lose themselves in the shadowy shrubbery, where the perfume of golden broom and mock orange seemed intensified by the darkness. Daphne sat in the quaint old candle-lit drawing-room, conversing with the two matrons. Aunt Rhoda inclined to lecture, Mrs. Turchill inclined to sleepiness, having eaten a more elaborate dinner than she was used to, and feeling an uncomfortable tightness in the region of her velvet waistband. Edgar got away from the rector as soon as he decently could, and came to the relief of the damsel. "'Well, mother, how are you and Daphne getting on?' he asked cheerily. "'I hope you have made her promise to come and see you at Hawksyard.' Mrs. Turchill started from semi-somnolence and her waistband gave a little creak. "'I shall be delighted if Madeline will bring her sister to call on me some day,' she replied stiffly, addressing herself to nobody in particular. "'Call on you? Some day? What an invitation!' cried Edgar. "'Why, mother, what has become of your old-fashioned hospitality? I want Daphne to come and stay with you, and to run about the house with you, and help you in your dairy and poultry-yard, and—' Get used to the place. Get used to the place? Why should Daphne get used to the place? And for what reason was a fair-haired chit in a white frock suddenly projected upon Mrs. Turchill's cows and poultry? Cows as sacred in her mind as if she had been a Hindu. Poultry which she only allowed the most trusted of her dependents to attend upon. She felt a sudden sinking of the heart which was much worse than after-dinner tightness. Could it be that Edgar, her cherished Edgar, 
was going to throw himself away upon such a frivolous chit as this, a mere schoolgirl, without the slightest pretension to deportment. Daphne, all this time, sat in a low basket chair by the open window, and looked up at Edgar with calm, friendly eyes, eyes which were at least without guile when they looked at him. End of chapter 12